Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by Ben Schott, who will be known to very many of you through Schott's Miscellany, his hugely successful Christmas miscellany, much imitated of random interesting facts, which was a huge, huge splash back then. But he's come here now with his first novel, which is called Jeeves and the King of Clubs, and is a I don't know whether you'd call it a tribute or a continuation or a... So it's, it's a Jeeves and Worcester novel. Anyway, Ben, welcome. Thank um, you very much. The obvious question is, what the hell were you thinking <laughs> of? I think about that pretty much every day. Yeah, writing a authorised continuation of the Jeeves and Worcester novels is... I mean, these are patent leather footsteps in which to follow. I mean, really, he is the master. So, yeah, what am I thinking of? All I can tell you is it was the most fun I've ever had with words. And how how did it sort of start? I know The Spectator has a little bit of a role in this. Well, actually, you are partly to blame, but the real culprit is Donald Trump. Inevitably, all conversations must return at some stage to Donald Trump, so we're doing it early. In 2016, you will recall, when he was a candidate, there was a news story that came out in The New York Times that his former butler who looks a bit like Colonel Sanders, said on Facebook or suggested on Facebook that President Obama should be assassinated, which is not only unpleasant, but also technically a federal crime to call for the assassination of a city. Also generally above the station of a butler. Well, that's the point. And there aren't many times that butlers hit the headlines. So not only was I interested in this butler story, but my instant reaction was, I wonder what Jeeves would think. So I answered that question in a short story where... Bertie meets Donald and Jeeves at Brinkley Court and there's a game of croquet and it gets very complicated because Donald Trump has no idea what crack it is. And I sent it to the spectator and they very kindly didn't laugh. And I think you were part of the no, they laughed. At, they laughed in a good they way. They laughed in the right way. <laughs> and it got published and people didn't loathe it, which was a shock. And actually the feedback I got was really rather positive. And some people who know a lot about Woodhouse were very, very complimentary. And I thought, ha, well, this may be something. So I carried on writing and sort of thought, well, maybe there's another Jeeves and Worcester novel out there and try to work out how I might create something that was sort of different and new. And what you have created is something that's, well, it's quite plotty. It's got a proper sort of, you know, espionage come, you know, great gamey sort of plot in it which you know most of us think of Woodhouse as the sentences first and the plots afterwards so he agonized over the plots well, as did he I mean he if you read the letters he's like do you, can, do you know anyone who can send me a plot I'll send them a fiver I mean he really wasn't particularly confident about his plots but then again he's the greatest crafter of comic fiction in the English language so you know swings and roundabouts so what was interesting was for me was, okay, well, if I want to write a new Jeeves and Worcester novel, what do I do? So on the one hand, I can make young Jeeves and young Bertie, but how would young Bertie work? Because he would be at school and therefore he couldn't smoke or drink or drive or pop to the drones club. Plus, why would he have a butler? Plus, what happened to his parents? Plus, the First World War. So this struck me as being not good. Or we could have 21st century modern day reboot of Jeeves, in which case he'd be like an oligarch living in Mayfair and you'd hate him and everything about him. That's also Jonathan Ames has done something slightly well, similar precisely. as well. precisely. And so there's this whole other... And I just didn't think that was really what the world needed. Plus, a continuation just didn't seem to be... You know, there were 11 novels and 35 short stories and it's like, why another one? So my sort of leap was to turn his world five degrees to starboard and turn him into a spy, accidentally, as part of the British Secret Service. And... How did you do that? I mean, there was a kind of... There seemed to me a clever MacGuffin you hit on, which was the Young Ganymede Club. 
Yes, the Junior Ganymede. Junior Ganymede, sorry. So those of you who don't know the books, first of all, shame on you. Second of all, Jeeves is a member of a club, a club for valets, butlers and gentlemen, personal gentlemen. And there is a difference, and I can bore you in tremendous detail on this. And this club is called the Junior Ganymede Club. And so my sort of moment of inspiration was to say, ha, this club was actually founded in 1787, sorry, 1878, by the then Foreign Secretary as a way of gleaning information from butlers about the foreign gentlemen who visited their masters on the moor during a shoot or in the country house or because they had access to the dining rooms and the it's kind of perfect rooms. spy organization. Perfect spy. So it was to take the existing monuments on the landscape like Jeeves, like Bertie, like the Junior Ganymede, like Spode, and just give them a slight twist and give them a backstory. So everything that you read about the book is familiar if you like the books, but suddenly you're sort of, the camera pans back and you see, ah, well, maybe it's not what I thought. Even where Jeeves goes on holiday for his shrimping has a slight edge to it, but using all of the objects that existed in the world. Now, you said you've got the objects that exist in the world. How much do you feel sort of obliged to be true to Woodhouse's canon and his world? I feel to be as true as I possibly can and only to break it very deliberately. So I've taken a slightly... I mean, it's complicated. So Jeeves first marched onto the page in 1915 in the early days of the Great War and, you know, was written about until, you know, Plum died in the, in, in the 70s. So he spans a huge amount of time. And there's tremendous debate about exactly how long the books span and how many years they take up. It's It's... The, the chronology is complicated, disputed. And, of course, Plum had all sorts of odd anachronisms because he wrote over such a period of time. I'm not sure he really cared. So I want to try and be as accurate as possible and get as many details right so the people who really know their Woodhouse, and there are a lot of them, and they are very, very detailed in knowledge, so they at least feel that I've done my homework, but not be totally constricted. But I've tried to err on the side of being true and accurate and right, because why not? Did you, I mean, did you grow up with the Woodhouse stories? I mean, were they completely... Yeah, absolutely. I was read, my father read me Jeeves and Worcester while I was in bed at night before I went to sleep. And that's my first memory. And I'm, I don't know how much I understood, but it was really the words, the words and the language. And the words, I mean, writing it, it's, it's like solving a thousand crossword clues a day. Because every so obviously the plot has to work, and then every section has to work, and then every paragraph has to work, and every line has to work. But really, every single word has to work. Every syllable has to be right. It's got to have a hard sound or a soft sound. Where does the sir of G's come? Does it come in the middle of the sentence so you end on a hard word, or does it come at the end of the sentence so you get G's scepticism? There's a big difference between sir with a full stop after it and sir with a question mark after it. And if you use G's saying indeed, I mean indeed, sir, is like the ground should shake. <laughs> These are incredibly subtle, and every single word matters, because that's what I remember, is these incredible flights of language where he would take you down a road, and then this incredible diagonal with an image or a phrase or a simile or a word that just you just couldn't help but smile. And that was what engaged me, even if I didn't really understand the full plot and exactly you know what a cow creamer was. I'm not, still not entirely sure I know what a cow creamer was. So... It was the language, and that's what the real joy of writing was, to try and absolutely get that joy of language through. And how did, how did you persuade the Woodhouse estate that you were the man for the job? Well, they were very kind. It took a bit of persuasion, and quite rightly so. I sent them through my agent. I sent them a synopsis plus probably about 10,000 words of sample 
section sort of sketches because it's really there's as you say there's a lot of plot and it was really all right can I write a chase scene in the style can I write you know uh, uh, a farce scene and so it was really just partly just to test myself whether I could actually pull these things off and to give them a sense of it and it took some persuasion and I think there was some scepticism because I hadn't written a novel which is quite reasonable and my line was well although a novel is the end result although I'm not a novelist and this doesn't necessarily need a novelist to write what this is it's like creating the most elaborate Heath Robinson machine right so Woodhouse created so do you see it it not not so much in terms of kind of being a novelist as because I mean for a lot of people there'll be this jump as you know here's this guy who's very very good at detail he's very sort of nerdy about fonts and you know peculiar words and language and placement on the page and who doesn't really think in prose and you produce this extraordinary contraption in prose. I mean, But it's a of- game. I treated it like a game. So I think a novel should be like a PhD. And one of the definitions of a PhD is it should introduce new knowledge in a particular field. right? And that's not what I did. What I did was create this Heath Robinson machine with the levers, gears, pulleys, lengths of knotted rope that Woodhouse had left lying around his plots. And to create something that was fresh and interesting and fun and I think faster paced and sort of more dynamic and more modern, but exactly the same. So you'd feel totally familiar in the, you know, halls of Brinkley Court or three of Oakley Mansions, but it had something new and different. And that was really like solving a puzzle or a dozen puzzles, but it wasn't expressing my soul about the human condition, which I think is what a great literature should do or a great novelist. But the novel is the end result of this tremendous game. And it was, it was, as I said, it was the most fun I've ever had writing because you have every, every word you pick has the opportunity not only to get it wrong, but to take you somewhere really splendid. Yeah. And so you're constantly striving for, you know, the phrase that you think would just sound perfect in the voice of each of the characters. You say it would need to be faster paced. Were there other things you thought needed to be done to kind of adapt Woodhouse to a generation that maybe would be capable of forgetting it. So there are three major stylistic differences. I think if people know the originals and read this, the first of all is that it's faster, more happens. And partly I just think we're just used to more action. If you watch Ocean's Eleven and then you watch the original Ocean's Eleven with Frank Sinatra, it's like watching paint dry. You cannot believe how slow it is. I just think we, as readers and as people who watch films and listen to music, we're just used to a faster pace and we can take in more information. Also, that's how I was writing it. It just got faster. The second major shift is Bertie's a little smarter in this book. And that was a deliberate decision, partly because I've never really believed he's all that stupid. Much as I love Hugh Laurie's representation in Fry and Laurie's Jeeves and Worcester, I think he played him slightly too buffoonish. Two things. First of all, I don't think Jeeves would spend, you know, 50 years hanging around with a complete and utter fool. I mean, Jeeves is too smart. I think he might enjoy it for a bit, but I don't think their relationship would be so long and fruitful if he was absolutely moronic. And the second thing, and this is the absolute tension that lies in the heart of the Jeeves and Worcester books, is that Bertie is a bumbling fool. Everyone knows this. He admits it. But yet the novels are written in the first person. So this bumbling fool is also the greatest crafter of fiction in comic prose ever to have lived. He can't be that stupid. And that's why, if, if a stupid man wrote a stupid book stupidly, you couldn't read it. But this is a man who tells everybody he's stupid, but yet is clearly a genius, because you can't just write these things if you're a moron. And I'm, this is a subject I'm fascinated by. Bertie's intelligence depends on who he's standing next to. Compared to Jeeves, he's a moron. But then again, so are we. 
Compared to Aunt Dahlia, they're about level. They parry, they spar. I think they kind of, they're about level. And compared to the Drones Club, he's an absolute genius. I mean, <laughs> compared to, you know, Bingo Little or Oofy Pross, I mean, the man is like, Bertie is like, you know, primus inter pares. So it's not simple as just saying he's a fool. So that's the second major shift. And the third major shift is I've introduced a smart, sassy, funny, intelligent female lead because women in Worcester's world tend to be of three types, either exacting harridans like, you know, Florence Cray or sort of awful, soppy, you know, appalling drips like Madeleine Bassett or aunts, which is a species of harridan. And there's never been... In, as far as I know, in, in, in the Woodhouse books, a, a girl you kind of, a female character that you sort of side with, who sort of Jeeves has grudging respect for. And it was really fun to write a sort of smart, sassy female lead who was smarter than Bertie and sort of, Bertie sort of was slightly like, gosh, you, yeah, <laughs> you really are quite something. Yes. Now, also, there's sort of appendix <laughs> added, which I, yes. I know you were kind of slightly on the fence about whether or not to do that. Can you talk a bit about what. Yes. So at the end of the book, there are end notes. There's an author's note in which I give quite reasonable and justifiable homage to the master and to the estate for giving me permission. And then there's, I don't know, a dozen pages of, of miscellany end notes to the text. And this was done because I discovered all sorts of fun things while I was writing. And the book is sort of based on lots of bits of fact because, you know, why not? Why not base it on some truth about the period, about language? And I just thought it would be fun, partly because I enjoy knowing these things and partly to bring in new readers into the Woodhouse world and partly because I'm a miscellanist and you can't keep a good miscellanist down or a bad miscellanist. For example, in the OED, Plum has 1,525 quotations. He's cited. He's cited as the first author for 26 words. And I've got all 26 of them into the book. And so I just thought, well, rather than just have that as just a thing that no one will ever notice, I put it as a little end note to say, right, well, here are the 26 words. A, can you find them? And B, well, this is fascinating. He was the first person, according to the OED, to put the word cuppa, as in a cup of tea, into text. How utterly pleasing. (laughs) So there were all sorts of little footnotes and end notes that I just thought were fun and just gave depth or interest or amusement or just happened to amuse me. But also, I mean, it's that sort of attention to detail kind of fascinates me because, I, I mean, as in, having had the privilege of being an earlier reader of this book, I remember thinking, well, I have to give him a couple of notes saying, well, I, I'm not sure about this, you know, surely the word copacetic is a 1970s kind of, uh, and you instantly shot back by reply going, no, actually, the first citation was this and this and this time. And I, I uh, you well, know, you were able to zoom in and say, you know, PG well, Wells would have yeah. used that. And- so, I mean, I, I, as I, I wrote with the OED open online as I was writing, partly to avoid anachronism and partly to get, you know, le mot juste. But the the choice of word is interesting. So, for example, there's a line I had, which was a character said, "I, I did think you might want to babysit your investment about some money that Bertie had lent him. And I kept on stumbling over this. And I was like, babysit, I just don't, it doesn't feel right. So I looked it up in the OED and babysit was first used in the 60s. So I thought, well, that's if you're going to make an anachronism and there's a spinal tap joke, then really go for it. Don't accidentally be anachronistic. And then not only did I think, well, babysit is wrong term-wise, but also these people wouldn't have babysitters because babysitters is a middle-class thing. So actually, the line is, I did think you'd want a nursemaid your investment, which is not only accurate to time, but also accurate to character 
And so every word is an opportunity to get it wrong, but also to like get it right and take you into that world further and sort of ring more true. And I mean, not every word, but my God, good 60% of words went through that test. You mentioned the idea of bringing more readers into Woodhouse's world. How much do you feel he has been at risk of sort of being forgotten? Because I know that for people of our generation, who were both sort of in our mid-40s, I guess, and you know, we will have grown up with it. And the Fry and Laurie show will have kind of kept it going for some people, kept him on the rise. But is he someone who could sort of vanish, do you think, to modern readers? I think that's always a risk. I think he was anachronistic pretty much as he was writing. He was writing about a very, very small part of the world, even in, you know, the Small 20s. part of society and small yes. part of the world, yeah. even in the 20s. So it was always, the joy was the anachronism, the joy was the oddity. And I think, you know, it's one of those things. People will say about Woodhouse, oh, my uncle gave it to me, my aunt gave it to me, my father read it to me, somebody put it into my hands. You almost need to be introduced. He's one of these writers. And I think, for example, I think I'd take another great writer, E.F. Benson, a sort of cult favourite. There are people who know about him and people who don't, and most people don't. And I think the danger is Woodhouse could be. And there's several reasons for this, partly because the world is anachronistic and people either find it engaging or they don't. But partly his canon is so big. I mean, he wrote, I mean, I, I actually don't know the statistics, but I mean, you know, he wrote 35 Jeeves and Worcester, 11 uh, short stories, 11 Jeeves and Worcester, and that was just those. He wrote plays, musicals, and dozens of other stories of different characters in the Blanding series and the golf stories and the cricket stories and the school stories. I mean, he was absurdly productive. And of course, that is a nightmare because where do you start? And people say, well, what should I read first? And I'm, I'm sort of stumped. I don't know. Smith? Yeah. I mean, where do you begin? Because there's no way in and there's such a big lake. Now, Jane Austen's easy because, you know, such a tiny yeah, little can. Six or seven of them. There you done, go. You're done. <laughs> so I think that's a real problem. And I would love this book to be enjoyed, but I love it. People to say, right, well, let's return to the to the wellspring of to genius. A gateway drug. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to be a gateway drug. Now, he produced that huge canon, if I'm remembering rightly. He did, wasn't it 400 words a day, every day, wasn't he? He, he was one of those... I don't actually know. I think he, he wrote a lot and he wrote fast. I'm I don't I'm not aware of him having a like a, a word limit. But I mean he would sort of bang out a novel in you know he could bang out a novel in four or five months, and he wrote a lot and he wrote for money. I mean I rather admire him. He was I mean given that his work is anything but hackish, he was a hack. It's like G.K. Chesterton. I mean he absolutely wrote and he turned it out, and money and business was absolutely on top of mind, partly because he was subject to double taxation. So this was before the tax treaty between America and England. So when he was living in the States, he was... He was taxed on his full income in both countries. And I think his case was one of the reasons why they a tax treaty, because I mean, he earned a lot of money because he had like plays on Broadway and he had books, but he was sort of in big financial trouble because he had a very unusual, almost unique tax situation. And there's actually someone's written a book all about Woodhouse and the income tax because, you know, he was... Anyway, so money was absolutely, you know, forefront of his mind. And he wrote, I think, probably 70% for the love of writing and 30% because, you know, royalty checks had to keep coming. Quite. Well, let's hope you get some royalty checks for this. Ben Shot, thank you very much. Thank you. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. Very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you.